and welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Joining me is my compadre, Jason Cochran. He is the editor-in-chief of Fromers.com and the author of two of our guidebooks. Hey, Jason, nice to speak with you, as always. Hello, Pauline, and hello, podcast folks. So we're going to kind of flip roles here today, and you will be interviewing me because I just came back pretty recently from West Virginia. I was there to speak at the West Virginia Governor's Conference, uh, talk to them about travel trends, but I, I, I didn't want to come in blind. It's been a while since I've been to West Virginia. This was actually my third trip. So I, I did a little traveling around the state. And uh, it, it, a lot has changed there. It was really fascinating. All right. Well, I'm interested to hear about it. I don't know a lot about West Virginia. I've been to the pieces that are near Washington, D.C., you know, on the uh-huh. border, pretty much. Uh, that Harper's Ferry would be an example, because that used to be part of Virginia, Virginia. Now it's West Virginia. Um, but I haven't been to West Virginia I, that I can recall. What is it like? What was your what was your time there like? Well, it's it's a beautiful part of the country. I actually, it's home to the United States' newest national park, which was a park previously, but it got the national park designation, believe at the end of 2020. And I had a long talk with a a wonderful ranger there, a woman named Eve, who was so damn smart. Whenever I talk to a ranger, it it makes my day. those folks are are so brilliant. It's it's competitive to be a ranger, and and they really know all and, about what they're and discussing. They they, and, they and they train everywhere. They go all over the country before they're given their assignments. Yes. Sometimes, so they really understand what this country has to offer and why their units are so special. Right, and so we were. I asked her <clears throat> if climate change had been affecting that national park, and she said, "Not really. Uh, that that luckily in that part of the United States, they're still getting a lot of rain. In fact, in 2016, they had a thousand year flood uh, in the first city I was at, which was White Sulphur Springs. We'll go back to that. But she was talking about how if you look at a map of the United States. The West is pretty dark, but then when you look at the eastern United States, it's all brightly lit up at night, which means there aren't many trees. <laughs> but in West Virginia, uh, you have the largest amount of contiguous forest. So they're doing a good deed for the rest of us because those trees are what is sucking up all the carbon that's being produced by the rest of the uh, East Coast. And also, they're doing a good deed for tourists because mm. it is just such a stunningly beautiful uh, area of the country. So uh, the, the national park is is known as New River Gorge National Park. It's on land that was used for coal mining. And so as you're driving around what looks like pristine nature, they have a really nice driving tour that you can, you just uh, go to the QR code and you can download it and, and drive around and, and look at, at the spectacular bridge that, that is in the heart of the park, as well as these nature areas. And you, you discover, oh no, these weren't nature areas always. In fact, this was, West Virginia was the most productive coal mining region of the United States in the, gosh, uh, 
middle of the last century and and before that, they were responsible for something like 25% of the coal uh, produced in all of the United States. So a very important region, a region that had a very mixed uh, to pretty awful labor history, uh, which which is all part of the National Park's uh, driving tour. You learn about the fact that coal miners would live in these towns and you, you pass the ruins of some of them where they lived in company housing. They had to buy everything at the company store. In fact, they had to do all this with scrip rather than with cash. Uh, mm-hmm, so right. they weren't using American dollars and that made a lot of them indebted for life to the uh, to the coal mine because often they were cheated out of their wages and, and there were a lot of uprisings and a lot of violence. And, you know, it's interesting to be going on what you thought was going to be a nature drive and instead hearing uh, the history of union unions in the United States. It's, it's, it's a really a great surprise and makes seeing the nature that much more interesting because you understand that, okay, some of this was here, but a lot of it was replanted and a lot of it is over the, over what had been a pretty notorious part of the United States. Also in the gorge, is this spectacular bridge built in 1974. When it was built, it was the tallest steel arch bridge on the planet. And starting Mm. about 12 years ago, a, a very smart entrepreneur created a catwalk on the bottom of the bridge that tourists can go on. You have to take a tour. They clip you up to a safety harness because there's not much between you and the river hundreds of feet below. But you walk the span of this enormous bridge. And while I was there, because they do inspections on the bridge at the end of the summer, we got to talk to a lot of the guys who were inspecting the bridge and and look at what they were looking for. Uh, which was an added bonus that was fascinating, but it's an it was a beautiful walk. Not good if you're if you don't like heights. I'm okay with heights, so I was fine. But very very interesting learning about the engineering and the biggest enemy to the bridge, with which is water. It's an unpainted bridge because they used a type of steel that naturally rusts. And that rust then protects the bridge. And they think that the bridge could stand in that condition unless they got too much water in certain parts of the bridge. But it could stand for thousands of years. Uh, <laughs> because it's, it's rusting. <laughs> well, the rust the rust is what actually protects it, bizarrely enough. That is bizarre. Uh, I've never heard of that. Yeah. So that was that was fun. And then I did a, a, a zip lining excursion with Adventures on the Gorge, which takes you from mountain peak to mountain peak, also right outside the park. And that was that was a hoot. I always love zip, zip lining. I was with a, a bunch of women who had never done it before and they were screaming their heads off. <laughs> it was pretty fun. So that Are was there the many middle ruins of my- around there. That you can explore? I mean, you say that it used to be in much different use and now a lot of trees have grown. Is there any evidence of, you know, that, that, that industrial period that you can go and explore? There is some evidence, but not as much as you would think. I think that this is such a verdant part of the world that a lot of it is really overgrown. 
So it was hard to see. It's also one of the top uh, rock climbing places in the world. I got to watch people scaling what looked like a sheer cliff. I had no idea how they were finding their their finger holds, but people apparently come from all over uh, to rock climb uh, in, in at uh, New River a, Gorge. A talent that I'm happy for them to have, but <laughs> just watching that makes me nervous. Yeah, well, so uh, that was the middle of my trip. I started my trip by flying into the Greenbrier Valley Airport, which is a an airport that gets a lot of private jets because it is home there to the very famous Greenbrier Resort. The Greenbrier Resort has long been a place where Washington, D.C.'s one percenters go. It's this absolutely gorgeous kind of over-the-top property. If you know Lily Pulitzer dresses, mm-hmm. uh, which are, you know, they're all in shocking orange, green, yellow, yeah. pink. Very Palm Beach that, to me. Very Palm Beach. Well, that's the that's the decor of the Greenbrier. Uh, it's really, really over-the-top exuberant, which makes it a lot of fun to walk around. I I didn't stay there this time, but I got to walk around. They have falconing classes. They have a famous golf course. And I didn't see it this time, but I did the last time I was there. They have a hidden bunker that was created during the Cold War as the place for the American Congress to go should there be a nuclear attack on the United States. Now, it's it's a museum now. It's not being used. And there's all kinds of people whispering about where the new bunker is. Uh, I heard that the Greenbrier's horse stable uses an unusual amount of electricity. Hint, hint. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but... Um, it's really fascinating to to tour through that bunker because they they have everything you would need for people to live in it for years, including a morgue, including you know uh, tinned goods, including it, it, it's just a, a fascinating place to see. I also explored Lewisburg. Which back when we were both at Budget Travel Magazine, we named one of the best small towns in America. Uh, and it's still a delightful place to visit. You, you win my heart when you're a tiny town and you have two bookstores. Uh, to <laughs> me, that, that, that shows that it's a great place. They also have some fabulous restaurants. I went to a place called the Historic General Lewis Inn and had some of the best fried chicken and fried okra I've ever had. They also had more upscale things, a really good cocktail program. I remember when I went to West Virginia, when I was in my 20s, I actually toured through it with a children's show back when I was an actor, and it was impossible to get anything decent to eat. That's kind of what I remember from it. I remember you mean everything in- used to be fried back then? Everything used to be fried and processed, you know, they, it was like they, they had no idea that there were fresh fruits and vegetables in the world. And this time I, I had some pretty good meals. I, I, I had a couple of excellent ones, one or two oversalted ones, <laughs> but for the most part, it, it, it isn't the disaster for foodies that it was 20 years ago, um, that they really, they really have made great strides 
towards serving palatable food, <laughs> which is good. Palatable to very good food. But Lewisburg, I learned a lot about the history of West Virginia and and the country there. Lewisburg had kind of was put on the map because they had a uh, a springs nearby that people would come to to take the waters. In fact, there was a a whole trail that was very popular during colonial days and afterwards where people for their health would go from spring to spring to spring in West Virginia. And that was kind of one of the economic bases of the region. I also learned why there is a West Virginia, why there isn't just a Virginia at at this historic house. Apparently at the height of the Civil War, this part of Virginia seceded because they wanted to be with the Union. Which was which was nice to learn. Well, it's interesting uh, that you mentioned that because uh, I have a great an ancestor. I think it's my great great grandfather who fought in the Battle of Corks Ford, which is apparently the battle that eventually decided that West Virginia would be in the Union. I it hmm. looked back and forth for a little while, but Battle of Corks Ford, which my ancestor fought in, um, wow. delivered West Virginia to the to the North. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? I didn't interesting. realize I had that connection until very recently. And I've never been to Corksport. It's near a town called Parsons in West Virginia. Right. But apparently I should, I should go and check my heritage out. Yeah, absolutely. And in this historic house, it's called the North House in uh, Lewisburg. They they did a very good job telling the story of the enslaved people who had lived and toiled there. And apparently this was a new exhibit uh, that had been put up just before the pandemic. So interestingly, not part of the Black Lives Matter movement. It really was something that they they wanted to do on their own, but it's only getting seen now because they've only recently just reopened to the public. So I went there and then I went to Carnegie Hall. <laughs> this little town, Lewisburg, has a, has a Carnegie Hall. And in it, do you know, I'm sure you do, you know what a dime museum is? Uh, tell us. Well, a dime museum is a museum of oddities uh, that is gathered by usually different collectors. In this case, it was collected by a man whose name was, and I'm not joking, uh, Mr. Sunshine. And uh, I don't know if that's his real name or his nom de dime, but he he collected all of these really interesting oddball items that tell another kind of tale about America. Like he went deeply into harmonicas. Apparently harmonicas were hugely important and popular in the 1910s and 1920s. And one of the one, one of the harmonicas that struck me was a harmonica that is hidden inside a lady's purse because a lady playing harmonica in public would have been considered loose because she played a musical instrument with her mouth. And so she had this hidden in her purse so she could play it in private. <laughs> and so what apparently she would just look there like was, she was barfing in her purse and that's how she would play the Mark Harmonica. <laughs> I don't know. It was very odd. Apparently, there was a Cab Calloway song about purse harmonicas. It was a, it was an actual thing. Women secretly playing harmonicas. Those harlots. He also those harlots. He also ca- uh, collected 
almanacs. You know, we only think of the farmer's almanac and uh, the Ben Franklin version, but apparently there there were thousands of almanacs at one point in the United States. And he has uh, lots of examples of different ones that are absolutely fascinating, and you can stand and read them. And uh, items about the, the strongest man in the world, who was a big silent movie star, uh, but came from West Virginia and a lot of West Virginia lore. But I love those types of little museums. The saddest part of that museum is I went through it all kind of entranced by this man's imagination. He wrote very captivating wall text next to his odd collections of stuff. And then as I was leaving, there was a big sign saying, this museum is for sale. (laughs) If you'd like to own the Sunshine Museum, call this number. So I guess long story short, you bought a museum, right? (laughs) Making a nickel museum, though, for the people. I did not. I did not. But you know, I I hope that Carnegie Hall has the fourth foresight to keep that little museum. I mean, it's taking up a side room off the performance space, and I, I think if they advertised it better. I think a lot of people would would find it entrancing. It really is a fun collection of of oddball things. Like like he had a a collection apparently Salvador Dali his assistant collected clocks for him. And so he has what is supposedly Salvador Dali's clocks. Who knows? <laughs> you know. Talk about who the knows if that was time. The truth. I didn't know they were in a museum. Well, you know, they reminds right. me, this reminds me of what Ripley ended up doing later on. Uh, but I guess this is sort of one of the forerunners to what Ripley's, believe it or not, did in his column. And mm. now in these touristy museums that we have everywhere, is he sort of this museum of oddities? Yeah, that's yeah, an American yeah. tradition. Total American tradition. And the other great thing I did was I went to the Lost World Caverns, which is this massive underground cave that's very nicely lit that has, I believe, the largest stalagmite, which is which are the ones that grow upward from the floor, the largest stalagmite in the United States, they believe, and also a stalagmite that's in the Guinness Book of World Records because a guy sat atop it for 22 days in the 1970s. I don't think it's a record that's going to be anybody's in a hurry to break. Yeah, I don't think uh, David Blaine's going to try to do that one. Right. Uh, but it was it was this really beautiful cave system. And as I was going out, these two toddlers, probably a four-year-old and a two-year-old, were walking in with their mother. And the little boy, who was probably about four, had a look of, I thought it was horror on his face as he was walking in. His mouth was agape and his eyes were huge. And his mother kind of turned to him and tentatively said, uh, I think his name was Willie or something. Willie, Willie, what do you think? And he paused and he went, I love it. (laughs) And then he walked in. I don't know. It was was just, you know, a boy's adventure place. It just was... Uh, and a girl's adventure place, too. His sister seemed to be liking it, too. So lots to see and do in West Virginia. And I didn't even get to Harper's Ferry or to some of the other historic sites. I only saw a small quarter of the state. But if you want an outdoor vacation with incredible hiking, 
with gorgeous sights to see, like the newest national park, which is a pet-friendly national park, I should say. And oh, I forgot the the and and also West Virginia is at the forefront of accessible travel. I stayed at a place in Sulphur Springs, which is near the Greenbrier, called the Schoolhouse Hotel. It was an old schoolhouse for many years, but what's notable about it is it is the only hotel on the planet, they claim, and I think they're probably right, that is fully accessible. Every inch of it is made for people with different disabilities. So what does that mean? It means in the theater, instead of having wall sconces, they have a lighting on the ceiling because they know that people who lip read have problem with wall sconces. In the bar area, there's a part of the bar that's at wheelchair height so that people in wheelchairs can belly up to the bar. And not only is the bar at their, at their height, where the bartender stands when he's doing service at that part of the bar is sunken so that he is talking to them eye to eye. Mm-hmm. And every, which I thought was very moving, actually. Yeah, that is great. Yeah, every single. Things, but it matters. No, yeah, it matters. Every single room is accessible in the entire place. And that too is important because I've seen uh, people who are wheelchair bound say on message boards, well, the only accessible room they had was on the third floor. And I can't stay above the ground floor because what if there's a fire? You know, I think a lot of hotel operators don't think about that, but people in wheelchairs want to stay on the first floor so they know they have easy egress should something go wrong. Right, they uh, have to wait so, for someone if the, to get them if the elevator's not working. Yeah. Right, right. So I, I thought it was really, really cool. This was done with a grant uh, from an organization that that is devoted to making life for people with disabilities in this country better and and bless them they really have with this place and it's beautifully designed too i mean it's it's a really nice place to stay so overall by the way before we wrap how are the prices i think of west virginia as being a very affordable place to visit Definitely. Yes. It's much more affordable. I mean, you can still get an entree there for $11 <laughs> instead of, you know, you and I, I'm in New York, you're in LA. It, it feels like now entrees are $30, $40. Uh, there you can go to a nice place and, and still not pay through the nose for a restaurant. And the attractions also. And I, I imagine the Greenbrier is expensive, but, but a normal the hotel room is not the Greenbrier? Absolutely. I, you know, I think a, a normal hotel room should be less expensive. The national park is free to visit. Tours seemed less expensive than other places in the country, like my zip lining tour. So yes, a very good place for an affordable right. vacation. I'm glad you brought that up. All right. Well, thank you, Jason. Always great to speak with you. Great to talk to you. Glad you're back. Our next guest is Christopher Elliott. He is a consumer advocate and columnist for USA Today, and he's in Cyprus right now. Hey, Chris, you're so peripatetic. Nice to have you back on the show. Hey, Pauline. It's always good to be with you. And this is the only show that uses big words like peripatetic, so good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, my my listeners can handle them. We have the smart list, smartest yes. listeners in the industry. <laughs> Damn it. Well, We'll get back to Cyprus, but 
I wanted to talk to you about a subject that bedevils travelers. Hey, another 50 cent word. It is what is called in the industry corollary fees. I just was at a major industry conference, the Skift Conference, uh, which had a parade of CEOs talking about the industry. And the guy from Marriott got up and he talked about the fact that or maybe, you know what? Maybe it was IHG. They all kind of run together. I know I'm supposed <laughs> to think to, to keep them straight, but, but the guy from, I, I'm pretty sure it was IHG. He talked about the fact that they had gotten rid of 150 franchisees who didn't meet industry standards or their standards. And so those people were no longer able to run the Holiday Inn flag. I think it was, I think he said, you know, we told them they had to rebrand their hotels. They could no longer use our branding. And he also talked about the fact that they have been, they've been more strict about why they would allow corollary fees, that it had to be a value of X, Y, Z. To my mind, corollary fees, which are known to consumers as resort fees or facility fees, they're just a common tax dodge. In, in many parts of the world, you pay lower taxes on fees. So uh, instead of raising room rates and paying more taxes, a lot of hotels simply slap on a tax fee. It's also a way to hide what you're charging consumers uh, when people are looking at those search engines. A- am I being too cynical about this? or And, and why, are, why are they still here? Sorry, no, that's a hugely no. long question. How many questions are you going to ask me, Polly? My goodness. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. That's no, okay. Um, yeah, you know what? It's uh, no, you're not being cynical enough because uh, these these fees are not only a tax dodge; they are a way also of hotels to get out of paying commissions to travel agents. But mm. most of all, they're a way of hiding the true room rate. So yeah, all the sure. all of the uh, hotels want to remain competitive. They want to have the lowest rate. That's, that's the, the way that they say they want to have the lowest rate. And so what they do is they, uh, they peel off uh, taxes and then resort fees, uh, and then they, then they have a lower rate. And then people say, oh, look, I can book this low rate. People always book the lowest rate if they can. And um, hmm. it's really, a, it's, a, it's basically they're just lying about their rates. So that, that's how cynical you have to be. They're lying about their rates. And, and then really they're, they're telling you that they're giving you all this great added value, like free phone right. calls, free internet, but it's not free if you're paying for it. So that's another thing Absolutely. is that they're just like lying about that. But yeah, it's, it's really and, and it, terrible. It's also, it's also perks that used to be just naturally included in the room rate, like using the pool or using the gym that, you know, so there was a big lawsuit with Marriott that I thought was going to spell the end for mm-hmm. resort fees. Can, can you talk a yeah. little bit about that and why it's been a nothing burger? <laughs> so far, at least, yeah. It was uh, a, a lawsuit against the uh, Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Attorney General filed a lawsuit against uh, Marriott. And, and at the end of that, Marriott agreed that it was going to uh, disclose its resort fees uh, it was it would better disclose its resort fees, and uh, and and they were basically there was the expectation was that there would not be any more resort fees 
uh, with Marriott properties and that it would spread to the other Marriott properties and then spread throughout the industry. Essentially, people were thinking it was going to be the death of resort fees. But what right. really happened was uh, so far nothing. And Marriott still yeah. has a couple of months left before uh, it, it, it meets its, has to meet its deadline. But um, really, the bigger picture is that there are several states that are uh, considering action against Marriott and other hotel companies about resort oh, fees. Good. And that at some point, uh, something is going to stick because this can't go on. This is, people are absolutely, hotels are lying about their rates and it's, it's absolutely um, something that's, that just it can't continue like this. Before that golden day when justice is served and this stops, what can uh, consumers do? Is there anything they can do to avoid uh, resort fees? Yeah, I mean, if you see a resort fee when you're booking, uh, click away, don't book on it. That sends a very strong message to the hotel that you're not going to tolerate a resort fee. And that's the only way so that they're going to remove it. Yeah. You think they're looking at the tech that closely that they know when well, in, in the <laughs> booking process you click away? No. Well, yeah. Oh, no, they absolutely do know when you book away. Absolutely. Uh, will people do it? I don't know. I mean, the problem is when you have uh, you, you find a really good rate and then you tell the whole family, hey, guess what? We're going to go to the Marriott in Orlando. We're going to go to Disney. It's going to be so much fun. And then uh, then you say, oh, wait a minute, there's this resort fee. And by then everyone's thinking, oh, we're going to go to the Marriott in Orlando. Uh, that makes yeah. it very difficult for you to, to, to click away. But if it's just between you and you, you know, and you're st- sitting there working on, the, on your reservation and you see this resort fee. Yeah, you absolutely can right. and you should. And, the, and and your booking engine is actually going to, it's, it'll follow. Uh, it's like an abandoned shopping cart. It knows when you've uh, clicked away. and, uh, and it, But Chris, yeah, but in certain uh, markets, I, I write the New York City guide for Fromers, Fromers New York City, and it's almost impossible right now to avoid resort fees in a city that has no resorts. I mean, <laughs> yeah. almost every hotel I, I go to now has resort fees. So you could be abandoning and abandoning and abandoning and still not find a good place uh, that, that has straightforward pricing. Uh, Orlando, Las Vegas, Hawaii, and New York, they all have a lot of resort fees. There are resorts, or there I should say hotels, there are hotels where they, they don't charge those fees. You can get out of it in a couple of different there are ways. A couple. Yeah, yeah. They, they do. They do exist, but they, you're right; they're rare. Um, sometimes, if you are an elite level uh, frequent stayer, you can get out of the fees. Sometimes, if you're on a group rate, you can get out of the fees. Sometimes, you can negotiate yourself out of those rates, where where you say, "Hey, look, um, I uh, I'm not going to use your exercise equipment, or I'm only here for a night. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to pay this thirty dollar fee." Or you can also say this was not clearly disclosed. That one really has the most legs because if, if you can show oh. that it wasn't disclosed clearly enough, you might be able to also dispute the resort fee on your credit card and win. Huh. Wow. Okay. So do you do that as you're checking out, as you're booking? Does the timing matter? Um, if possible, when you start, so when you arrive. But if uh, you don't if you don't see your folio until the end and it has a resort fee on it and you didn't know about it, then definitely say something before you check out because you're probably going to want to talk to a manager. Huh. 
Okay. Now, the other corollary fee, and there are many in the travel industry, so I, I don't want to just say the other, but one of the other corollary fees that really drives uh, customers up the wall uh, is a fairly new one where the airlines not only charge for luggage, but are getting pretty damn strict about carry-on luggage and converting that to checked luggage. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are we seeing many more airlines at at the gate saying, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, you can't bring that bag on? It seems to me like that's the number of that is going on up. It absolutely, oh, it absolutely is. I've heard from readers who tell me that it's happening and it just happened to me yesterday. Uh, I was checking in for a flight from Vienna to uh, Larnaca, uh, Cyprus, which is the main airport here. And the, uh, the woman from Austrian Airlines at the gate said, okay, you, you three, this might work in the United States, but not here. We're not going to tolerate it. And we didn't have that many bags. We just, you know, we are traveling with all of our earthly possessions, but it wasn't that much. Um, <laughs> Wow. And, uh, and they, uh, she, she said, you're, you're going to have to check all these. Now, we had already paid for one check back. So she put, uh, and she was not very nice about it. So she put a tag on two of our bags and we just rolled them uh, down the jetway and we got on the plane and we just ignored the fact that we had to, kids don't do this at home, <laughs> but we just ignored her. Um, well, and I should say, let's, let's cut in here and say that in Europe, they do have different standards for bags. They we, do. We just did a, an article on Fromers.com on which carry-on bags are actually small enough for Europe. Because I remember once checking in for a Ryanair flight, and I was sitting there uh, in the waiting oh, area, waiting to board. I didn't know that that my ba- my carry-on was too big, oh. and every other passenger was looking at me with shock. And nobody said a word to me, but I could tell, I I felt like this, like I had, I I don't know, blue paint on my face or something that they, they all knew something was about to happen to Mm me. Uh, (laughs) And then it did, I got charged, I think it was uh, 50 euros uh, to deal with the bag. First of all, I I can't believe that you flew on Ryanair. I mean, friends don't let friends fly on Ryanair. (laughs) This was about a decade ago. Okay. All right. So you were, you were young. I get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. No, but actually, uh, the, there's there have been surveys. Um, the very um, uh, well, I, I mentioned this in my article. Um, uh, one of the the leading um, companies that that studies ancillary fees, which is wh- what we're talking about here in the business, they're called ancillary fees, and uh, they said essentially that these carry-ons and luggage was the next big growth area for airlines, and yeah. that. Uh, you know, now that they've had to remove some fees during the pandemic, notably change fees, ticket change fees, which were a huge source right. of money. So they're now they're going for the carry on luggage. Uh, we saw that. So this you summer. don't think that you don't think change fees will be back? Um, I think they might I've been be worried back. about that. Yeah, I know. I think they might be back, but they're going to call them something else and they're going to find a different way of of imposing them. Because <laughs> I personally, I think that there is a deal made uh, when when the U.S. government, so that when our federal government mm. gave aid to the airlines during the pandemic, but they said, look, we're going to give you uh, $51 billion, but you got to get rid of these ticket change fees because they're a little bit ridiculous. And so they probably said, okay, look, we're going to get rid of the change fees. You give us the $51 billion. No one gets hurt. But now the airlines are really having regret. They're having these regret, regrets because 
the those ticket change fees were actually netting them more money than they got from the government. And they're going to try to find a way of getting them back. Oh, interesting. I think probably the government said, look, these change fees are going to force people who are sick to fly. And so this is, you know, yes. for all our good. Well, and they're working on a rule about that, actually. They are working, the, the huh. DOT has a, a rulemaking right now, and they're thinking about, it's more an issue of, of uh, ticket credits being non-expiring. So you know how Southwest just made all of its ticket credits not, not expire, but the, uh, yeah. uh, the rest of the airlines still have, you still have a, a year to use them. And the thinking is that if you are sick and you cancel that, you, you would get a ticket credit uh, that wouldn't expire. So that would take some of the pressure off you. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. Back to luggage. I'm sorry. I took us on a detour. So uh, you were saying that you think because of the lack of change fees, we're going to see more and more luggage fees imposed. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily cause and effect, but I think that airlines are really looking for a way of making more money, more ancillary fees. Uh, that's really the growth area because, as you know, airlines don't control ticket prices. We do. If we don't want to pay for a ticket, we just won't pay for it, and then the airline has to lower their fares. So uh, they they have to find some other way of making up the money, and so ancillary Chris, fees are a way of really- doing that. You really, I, I, I'm not sure I, I'm with you on that. I mean, in many markets, especially in the United States, certain carriers have a monopoly position and consumers don't have any uh, choice but to pay what the airlines are charging. Well, that's true too. Uh, I think though that if, uh, if you had a, theoretically, if you had a plane and they were charging $1,000 for a short flight and no one decided sure. they were going to pay it, then the airline yeah. is sitting on a plane, you know, sitting there with a the plane and no, no passengers. So uh, that, that's what I meant by that, is that really we have more pricing power than we know. And that if we say no to a fare, then the airline will, at some point, will have to lower the fare. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. With inflation we've, and everything that's going on, it's been this incredibly sharp uptick. Uh, I thought in, in fares. I mean, especially over the summer. Thank goodness they're going down again, uh, but still not to 2019 levels. Uh, it's it's harder and harder for for consumers to get a really good fare. So what um, we should do, Pauline, I, I think we should just like do a, an op-ed, like a commentary. And you do your your position, and I'll do mine, <laughs> and then we'll we'll let okay. readers at Frommers vote on it. Okay, sure, sure. Before before I let you go, you gave a solution for people saying no to hotel fees. What about airline fees? Oh, yeah. That's a little harder because everyone travels with luggage. Uh, but, you know, you could get one of those uh, wearable vests, those wearable luggage vests, like a Scotty vest. A Scotty vest. vest. <laughs> yes, right. Scott will be very yeah, happy. Yeah, those are I'm, fashionable. I'm, I'm, I'm plugging his... <laughs> They look like like fishing vests, but uh, they can. You, right. You'd be surprised at how much they can fit in them. And then you can also not travel with luggage. Oh. You could just not travel, yeah. of course. Well, or, Peter Greenberg always says to ship your. Oh, luggage. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, uh, you could you could ship yeah. it. I mean, Peter likes to use I think FedEx, which is really expensive. But there are other other services that let you that like deliver directly to a hotel. Uh, so that's another option. Here's one little hack that I've noticed is that the airlines tend to be a little bit more forgiving if you're putting, if you have things in a tote bag, 
Like if you're traveling with your family and you've got little snack items in there, they're less likely to go, hey, you know, we've got to check that because obviously you can't check a tote bag. So if you can stuff a couple of things in a tote bag, you might be able to get away with it. Good, good, good point. Well, Chris, oh, wait, before I let you go, you've only been in Cyprus a day, but how is it? And how was Austria? Did um, you see a lot of American tourists? Well, I've, uh, this is actually day two and a half, I think. So yeah, yesterday was day one. I'm in Lanarka, which is right on the coast, is a beautiful place. It's filled with Russians. Really? The weather is wow. just perfect. I mean, it's a little bit warm, but um, it's, you know, the water is, is gorgeous. It's really, the water is warm, but you can also, there's lots of really good visibility. So there's actually an underwater museum here that I'm hoping to check out, um, go diving there. And the food is you incredible. Just, you, the, the, the underwater the, museum, you have to scuba dive there. Yeah, you will. You can snorkel too. But the, uh, okay. but I have to say though it's it's a little bit like we were, we lived in Athens for a month it's like Athens but more laid back and the food is really really good here if you like Greek food you gotta come here I've never been to Cyprus I gotta say uh, but you're making it sound wonderful well thank you so so much Chris for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show my pleasure. And thanks to all of you for listening. That's it for this week. But to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. Watching K.